You may be seated. So as we come to the sermon now, a few verses from 1 Genesis 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. And at the other end of the Joseph story, the very end of the book of Genesis, chapter 50, after many things have happened, most of which I'm sure you're probably somewhat familiar with, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father, Jacob, was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> we pray for your blessing, Father, now as we hear it in Jesus' good name. Amen. <clears throat> when I was very young in the ministry, very early in my pastorate, a long time ago, I began to feel a pebble in my pastoral shoe that I could not quite identify. It began to feel to me as I was ministering to God's people in church services like this, Sunday after Sunday, like I, what I was doing was I was pouring water into potted plants who had just spent a week in the desert. And I somehow was sending them back out like potted plants to be in the desert. I knew what they'd look like by the time they came back next Sunday, and I was not somehow connecting them to a constant water source. 
We'd have good times with the Lord in these worship services, but then it didn't seem like it stuck beyond the parking lot. Well, I had a solution as a young guy fresh out of seminary. They need to be reading their Bibles more. We need to be praying more in our personal lives. We need to have more church activities to kind of keep the water flowing. And that was all good stuff. But it still felt to me like I was kind of pouring water into sand because I knew people that were actually pretty decent with their personal devotions, but once they left the prayer closet, it's like the whole thing just kind of faded. And when we walked out of the church activities, it was back to the desert. And I realized as a young pastor, started to wise up a little bit, I thought, I, I really need to understand the desert. What is this desert, these desert conditions that I'm sending these people I love out into every week? And in those days, you remember guys like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens? This was the, these were the hot, fiery days in the early 2000s of the, what was called the New Atheism. And these guys were, you know, touting this very kind of cartoonish atheism, and the church was all stirred up about this. And so I thought, you know what these people are facing, especially the young people, as they go out into the world, what they're facing is atheism. People don't believe in God, and they're going to get, you know, people that believe in science and try to tear down their faith and so on. And so what I did was I started pouring a lot of what's called worldview training, especially into the young people. Like, give them a Christian worldview. And we'd spend all kinds of time, you know, critiquing these ungodly, godless isms, you know, including atheism. And, you know, it was fine. We had some good times, some good discussions, but I realized I was still missing something pretty important because, again, you could dump the right ideas into people, and they had the right ideas. They, they would often even be able to articulate why the isms were wrong, the godless isms were wrong. And yet somehow it didn't really change much beyond the door. And I slowly began to realize something after a lot of serious study. I began to realize that at the heart of the modern desert, at the heart of the modern desert that we're all living in every day is a conviction. It is not so much something we think, it is something we feel. And it is reinforced by a gazillion daily routines. And it is this deep, deep, unconscious conviction that real life is finding happiness. Whatever else we might think about or talk about in our ivory towers, real life is finding happiness. That's the real thing. And only you can decide what makes you happy. That's the core conviction. Now, when I say that out loud, it probably sounds maybe not that impressive, but I, I want to kind of sit with this for a minute because it goes deeper than we think. Can we just be real? <laughs> that what feels real in our lives is finding happiness, that feels real. Things feel more or less real depending on whether or not they make you happy, especially if you're young. Our sense of what is important largely tends to be kind of oriented to, is this making me happy or not? I mean, if it really is something where when you're done you feel happy, then that matters. And if when you're all done, it does not make you happy, then it just doesn't matter that much. Or if it's irrelevant to your happiness, it doesn't matter that much. Real life, if we can get real, is about finding happiness. And here's the thing that we can all agree on as modern people. The God thing, the church thing, the religious thing, is one way to find happiness. It is one way to find happiness. Now, I want you to notice something in saying that. 
you can be totally religious in the modern world. You can be totally spiritual or churched or into God or whatever, however you describe it. You can, all that is quite possible in the modern world, but it is different now than it used to be because God and the God thing and religion, this is all relevant insofar as it makes you happy. God takes on relevance because God can make you happy. And we also need to acknowledge, and this too is very different from previous times in history, that God is obviously not the only way to find happiness. Because look, again, let's get real. We know people who have found happiness without God, right? Everyone talks about people who don't know God like they're miserable. That's not true. They're really happy people who don't give God a single thought in their lives. We know these people. And we need to be very honest that you and I are flooded with images now in the image-soaked world we live in, images every single day of people being happy without God. I mean, sure, you've got those, you know, Christians who are all like, you know, Jesus is my joy on Instagram. Fine, you've got those people, and then you've got all the other people for whom Jesus is irrelevant on Instagram, and they are very happy. And the, we just, you know, marketing in our society floods you with images of, you know, glamorously happy people. They're not talking about God, and we need to be even more honest in the modern world. More and more and more things have been explained and more and more and more problems have now been solved and no mention of God whatsoever. We are a sophisticated society solving problems, making stuff happen, and there's no mention of God. And so we look around, and the reality is you've got to get real. You don't need God to be happy. Some people find happiness because God makes them happy. Good for you. And I started thinking about this and studying and reading about it, and I realized something. A lot of people that I minister to come to church to find happiness. And God fades about the time they get to the parking lot because now they're busy finding happiness in all kinds of other ways. And out there, in all the ways there are to try to find happiness, God just doesn't feel very real. A lot of people who are very churched are not deeply, daily, every moment really rooted in God because it does not feel in the modern desert like God is the undisputed water source. If you've got exactly one water source, you tend to get rooted in that oasis. But if it doesn't feel like God is the undisputed water source, then it's not really all that crucial to be rooted in Him. And so what I see often with Christians in the modern world, even pretty serious Christians, is instead of being caught up, really kind of swept up in God's reality, right? Like, God is, and there's this story of God and what he's doing in the world. There's this thing we call the kingdom, the rule of God in the world. Instead of being caught up in all of that, God's work and his plan and his story, what the Bible calls real life, God, the God of life is doing things, and we're kind of swept up in that instead of that. For many, many Christians in the modern desert, God has become a contributing factor, or not, but a contributing factor in our reality. God, as I often like to say, is an app in the iPhone of our quest to be happy. Or to change the metaphor slightly, God is not, no longer a king whose very presence commands allegiance. He's more of a politician who needs to give me what I want if he wants my vote. This, I think, is the desert you're living in. And modern saints, like us, are not the first people to live in a desert. The Bible is full of people who lived in various kinds of deserts. And we tend to think of these people in the Bible as if they just kind of heard from God all the time, you know? 
they, they just kind of lived in this glow of like God could show up any minute, start talking to you, talking directly to you, right? And we just get the sense they were just surrounded by all this visible stuff. You know, God was, I don't know, like, you know, sending floods and bread from heaven. And it, you know, they're just kind of surrounded by all these visible trappings of God and what he was doing. The reality is you open the Bible and start reading is many of these people never heard a single word from God directly, not a word. And many of them lived surrounded by socio-cultural conditions in which there were no props for their faith. And there were all kinds of other gods who could give you blessings other than the God of Israel. And what I want to do in this short sermon series is I want to look at seven of these desert dwellers who dwelt, like us, in a socio-cultural situation where there were no props for their faith, no supports, And they weren't getting these direct words from God. They were very often alone and surrounded by a lot of stuff that could pull them in a very different direction. I want to ask, how did these people root themselves in God in their desert and flourish? And the first desert dweller I want to talk about today is Joseph. I want to take a moment with Joseph's desert. It's helpful to start with Joseph because, you know, talk about a desert dweller. His story is well known. I'm sure many of you know the story very well. And the reason why Joseph's story is well known is that in Joseph's desert, he was not just living in a social context, though he was. He wasn't just living in a social context that could make his God feel very unreal. I mean, Joseph, as we'll see, had like no props for his faith. But it wasn't just that. In Joseph's story, This young man had trauma and suffering that would make a modern happiness seeker eventually just start posting TikTok videos, captioned stuff like, I kissed God goodbye. I'm just done with God. If you ever feel like you're having a bad day, can I just encourage you to spend a few minutes with Joseph? Because I'm I'm not denying that you're having a bad day, but you'll feel more, you're less alone if you spend time with Joseph. Because, you you know the story well. He starts off as this favored child, which is, you know, great. He had a great relationship with his dad early on, but it's interesting, you know, as, he, as he's a teen, as we heard a little bit about this just a minute ago, as a teen, he kind of distinguishes himself by his character. He's got a lot of integrity for a young man, 17 years old, and he distinguishes himself from his older brothers. He's got a bunch of older brothers, and they're pretty much scoundrels, and because he's just a better person than they are, he is entrusted by his father, Jacob, with kind of watching over the household to make sure things are going well. And that does not sit well with his older brothers at all, as we just read. And you can already kind of feel this deep stress in Joseph's life. Like, do you guys have, ever have stuff going on in your household, and things are just not good, and it's stressful? Joseph is living with serious stress. His brothers actually hate him. (laughs) This is not, these are not happy dinner, dinner table times, right? You know, Joseph's got to eat with pe- these, these older brothers who just hate his guts. And then, of course, he has these two famous unsolicited dreams. Uh, and the dreams are, you know, it's not like there's an interpretation that comes with the dream, but it's pretty clear that at some point, Joseph's family is going to one day have some kind of reason to honor him. I, I, I'd like to point out something here, and that is that this is a, the only word that Joseph ever receives from God in his entire life. This is the only time God talks to Joseph his entire life. 
but he gets this dream, and he does not interpret the dream. He does probably make the mistake of telling his family about it. You know, that probably was not the most judicious thing he ever did, but he tells the dream, but he doesn't make any attempt to interpret it. He just kind of says, this is what I dreamed. They interpret it. They interpret it, and it is not favorable at all. They, they hate him so much they can't even speak peaceably to him. And, and I don't think it's too strong to say that Joseph finds himself as a teenager living with what could be described as emotional abuse. Because these brothers of his, guys, you've got to realize, you know, we modern people have lost all sense of how violent the, the ancient world could be. Do you know what these guys were like? The, this is Joseph's brothers. They hate his guts, and they are the kind of men. There was a situation that happened in another story where their sister Dinah was taken advantage of sexually by a, a guy, a, a local tribal prince. And the tribal prince took responsibility for his actions, and he came to the family, and he said, listen, we will make a covenant with you, and I will marry this girl, and I'll make this right. And the brothers, they are so vengeful and so violent, they, they, they basically con this prince and his entire tribe, and they say, fine, all the males have to be circumcised if you're going to join us. And, you know, circumcision tends to make you not want to move around a lot for a few days. And so all these guys are all sitting in their city, extremely sore. Simeon and Levi go in, and they butcher, they massacre the entire city. These guys are killers, like legit ancient killers. They're that violent, and they hate you. And you've got to live with them every day, and you wonder sometimes if you should, you know, Sleep with your eyes closed around this kind of stuff. Well, you know the story very well. One day while he's obeying his father and kind of checking on things with his brothers in this faraway place, they see their chance. They very nearly kill him in cold blood. But Reuben kind of intervenes, the oldest brother, and eventually they settle, when Reuben steps away, they settle on selling him to some passing slave traders. You know, again, you just kind of kind of let yourself sit in this story because it's so familiar. Like, oh, yeah, he was sold to slave traders. I mean, can you imagine if I hated you so much that one day I managed to somehow, you know, con you into a situation where I was able to get you kidnapped and, like, sold to local sex traffickers or something, and you find yourself waking up in, like, I don't know, the underworld of Moscow, and you never come home? This kind of trauma in his life? He never will see home again. He is dragged away in chains by these slave traders. And amid this kind of trauma and suffering, it's going to be with him for his entire life. Somehow, this kid exercises more integrity. And in the house of his slave owner, he just starts serving capably, willingly. And then things get worse. You know, as as if he hasn't suffered enough. As he matures, he's a good-looking guy. Maybe he's in his early 20s, hard to say, but he catches the eye of his master's wife. Apparently he's hot. And this woman sexually harasses him on multiple occasions, and then eventually she outright sexually assaults him. He only gets away by ripping off his garments and running for his life, and then she plays the victim, hashtag me too. Everyone believes her, and they make an example out of Joseph. He is hauled off into a prison that he later describes as a pit. And there is no update from God whatsoever. God has nothing more to say. And this young man finds himself in prison as a slave with no family, no church, no friends. He's just got a bunch of brutal pagans around him who care absolutely nothing for him and nothing for his God. I wondered how real do you suppose God felt to this heartsick young man as he cried through his prayers every night. You think God feels far away from you? In our modern desert, this kid is in a desert and it feels like God, if he exists at all, that might make things worse. 
Now, you know what is said a number of times throughout this horrible, traumatic desert experience? We are told the Lord was with Joseph, showing him steadfast love. But do you know what that steadfast love looked like? You know, if I was Joseph, I think I would have said, God, if this is steadfast love, maybe don't, don't give me steadfast love, because God's steadfast love does not show up as Joseph getting to go home. Steadfast love from the Lord does not show up in his abusive family getting their comeuppance or the Egyptian slave trade being overthrown. The loving kindness of the Lord shows up in giving Joseph success in making his slaveholders and eventually his prison keeper successful. <laughs> Isn't that great? I'm going to bless you, Joseph. I'm going to enable you to make your slaveholder first and later your prison keeper flourish. To the extent that there's any evidence at all of God's activity in this situation, it almost seems like it mocks Joseph because God won't give Joseph another dream. You know, there's no dream that says, oh, Joseph, you know, happy dreams, <laughs> better things, are nothing. But God is very pleased in this story to give dreams to two Egyptians who share a prison with Joseph, and he gets to interpret that, those dreams, and God will not even jog Pharaoh's cupbearer's memory when he has one of those dreams. He's eventually restored to serve Pharaoh again. And for two long years, God will not even jog that cupbearer's memory that it was Joseph who interpreted his, dre his dream once this guy is released and goes back to serving Pharaoh. I mean, this is some desert. Talk about feeling abandoned and God not feeling real. Now, you can argue that God shows up really big at the end. You know, we all know how this story ends. There's this very gratifying dream fulfillment where Joseph's brothers actually do come because they need food and they bow to him. And there's this resolution with the family as they repent of the way they treated him. And it's all very warm and touchy-feely at the end. And it seems like God has really showed up here and he feels kind of real again. But you know, I still kind of feel the desert in verse 22 of chapter 50, which tells us Joseph remained in Egypt. God never speaks to Joseph again. He has no more dreams, and he will spend the rest of his life in this exile, caring for these people among whom he's been enslaved, caring for these people who sold him into slavery. And yet at the end of his life, this man, looking ahead now, he's just lived through an incredible desert, looking ahead to centuries of more desert that are to come, for his people in the, what will eventually be slavery in Egypt, he, he gives these faith-filled directions at the very end about his bones. The writer of Hebrews says that Joseph, by faith, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites hundreds of years later and gave directions concerning his bones. Because the core of what has carried Joseph through this desert lies in those famous words in chapter 20, you know them very well, where Joseph says to his brothers, I'm not in God's place. As for you, you meant evil against me. God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And he held on to that truth, brothers and sisters, that God in these evils that were per perpetrated against him God means good in this. And he held on to that long before he, there was anything whatsoever to make him feel the reality of it. I mean, that's a heavy thing to say to yourself day after day when you're still in prison. You're still enslaved. Your brothers have not been brought to justice. He knew God would someday give him some kind of authority to do good to his family. And he held on to that without a single external prop to his faith 
whatsoever. And in fact, despite all kinds of evidence to the contrary. And I want to ask the question, for us in our modern desert, pretty tame by comparison, how was this kind of faith possible for this young man? We've looked at Joseph's desert. I want to take just a moment with Joseph's faith, and I want to ask you guys this question. If I were to ask you what you think your kids need to have this kind of faith in a modern world that we live in, in the modern desert that we live in, I, I, I'm sure many of you could give me many, many different answers. But I want to suggest something, that the deepest source of Joseph's faith, if you really get down to like the deep water this guy was drinking from, the core source of Joseph's faith was a reality outside of, kind of beyond himself, a reality beyond himself that really early in his life became rooted in his imagination. And let me tell you what I think that, that reality was. From birth, this was a reality whether Joseph never recognized it, but he did, it, it took root in his imagination. He realized from birth that he was a situated self. A situated self. What I mean is this, Joseph was born into a history that was already happening. And as he began to grow up in this world that he was growing up in, from his childhood, he began to understand, I have been born into something that is going somewhere. He, he kind of woke up in his childhood to the fact that I was born into like water that's already moving, into a history that's already happening. I, I was born, he began to realize as he began to get to know his family, I was born into a people who shouldn't even exist. Because great-grandma Sarah was barren, and grandma Rebecca was barren, and mom Rachel was barren. And yet somehow, despite all these impossibilities, we are now a people who are in our fourth generation and continuing to multiply, and we are this people because we worship a, the God who great-grandfather Abraham called the possessor of heaven and earth. He made the heavens and the earth. He owns the heavens and the earth. He's the one we worship. And he has said to great-grandfather Abraham that through us, through us, this little people that shouldn't even exist, God plans to bring blessing to all the families of the earth. Someday from our family, God's going to send a savior of the world. And he just kind of grew up beginning to understand, I was born into this thing that pre-existed me. And I want you to notice... He did not learn that in a book. Joseph, the boy Joseph, learned that from the people who were living the history. He learned this from the people who were living in this lively history that was already happening. Because Joseph, you remember, he was a wide-eyed little boy when his mom and dad ran away from wicked Uncle Laban who was sort of a pharaoh in his own right, a kind of a slave master in his own right. He, he kept mistreating and economically exploiting Father Jacob, but his parents, they, they fled from Uncle Laban and all of his false gods because they wanted to go back to, to Grandpa Isaac and the Promised Land. And Joseph was, he was this wide-eyed little boy when he heard, as they're traveling along, they finally got away from Uncle Laban, he heard this terrifying news that some Uncle Esau he's never heard of is coming to kill the whole family with 400 men. And he's there, and he's just watching. You can imagine how scared a little boy would be. And he, he hears his father Jacob pray and cry out to the God of his fathers to have mercy upon him. And then the next day, there was something weird about Dad, because Dad's limping today. He can't walk on his hip anymore. Dad, what happened? Well, 
I had a wrestling match with God last night, and I would not let him go until he guaranteed me his blessing that he promised me. All, in fact, he promised me before I was even born, he told my mother, Rebecca, that I was going to be the one who received the blessing. And I wrestled him for it last night, and he wounded me. And he watched his father, Jacob, limp into the sunrise to, to meet this, this murderous uncle. You can imagine how Joseph would have felt seeing this, all these camels coming, and here comes Uncle Esau, and we're all going to die. And he saw his father limp out and saw his father bow down, interesting language, to this murdering brother and win him over by freely giving to him everything that God had freely given to him. And Joseph's just watching this stuff. This is history happening, and I was born into it. And it fills his heart. He's filled with this history, the reality, this God, the possessor of heaven and earth, with these people for seemingly impossible purposes. He's full of all that long before he has these teenage dreams. And so he knew that just as God worked in his father's exile, he would also work in his exile and in the long centuries of the exile to come. He just knew this because he lived among the people of the history. Why am I going on about this? Because you, my brothers and sisters, are living in the exact same reality and history that Joseph lived in. You know, preaching can be discouraging. You know why? I, part of me just wants to hear like people shouting amen when they hear that. Y'all look like you're asleep. You are living in the same reality and history under this rule of the same God who was Joseph's God, brothers and sisters. You are situated selves. You are in this history. And that, I have come to believe, is the water that we need in the modern desert. Because we are in a context now, very much like Joseph, that makes that reality feel unreal. Does it not? Does what I just said, do you feel real when you get to your car this afternoon? And you're just out there busy trying to find happiness in the world? This world makes that reality and that history feel unreal. But you, what it means to be a Christian, is that you carry this history, this story, this reality, in your hearts wherever you go. That is your birthright as children of God. And so you can live in God's presence for God's purposes, regardless of the social context you find yourself in. You could be in a gulag. And live this history, because it's real and it's happening because you are the Lord's and you are in it. And it drives me a little nuts, because you know what? There are so many churches today that are not preaching this kingdom. I'm going to go out on a little bit of a limb here and say that today's modern so-called preaching of a therapeutic God who wants you to be happy... Rather than preaching the living and true God who is Lord of heaven and earth and whose kingdom and glory will fill the heavens and the earth, this is spiritual malpractice. And it is setting people up for the lie that when God does not make you happy, he's screwed up somehow, as if that was ever the plan. But we, you know, maybe in our more intellectual, you know, church life, you know, Presbyterians are famous for being frozen, chosen eggheads. You know what? We have our own version of this maybe, which is we just kind of worldview everything to death. Do you realize that just worldviewing your kids 
with all the right ideas, when they can critique all the isms, it is in danger of intellectualizing what is ultimately a heart issue, which is, my young brothers and sisters, do you know whose story you were born into? And therefore, whose you are and what your purpose is in his story? That is the question that can drown out the clamor of the modern desert. And I'd like you to notice something. I'm almost done, I swear. This lively history in Joseph's heart that he carried to Egypt prepared him to suffer well and to serve well. Do you know, because he was, had this story, this history, this reality, this God in his heart, suffering did not actually come. It was still suffering. It was still painful, but it did not come as a surprise to this young man. Because if you know the history you and I were born into, brothers and sisters, we should expect suffering. Because God has told us that it is through the sufferings of his people that God is going to bless all the families of the earth. Our banner in this kingdom is a cross. So it's not like, whoa, you know, God has given me a bad life. Joseph, because this history is in his heart, he can take the human failures around him and the human injustices around him, and he can locate and situate those in the larger frame of what God is doing in the story. That's why he can say, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good in verse 20. And so we do not find this man after, gosh, all of this suffering, he is not soured by cynicism at the end of his desert life. He's prepared to suffer well because the story is in his heart. But notice too his serving. His serving, the way Joseph puts this history, this reality, to work in the desert. Because, you know, if it's just in your heart, after a while, you're like, is it real? The way he puts it to work in the desert is by serving. Knowing this God, knowing his story, knowing his history, he takes every opportunity to do good to the people around him. And it is in doing good to those around him that we're told the Lord is with This is how we experience the reality of God working in, through, around us. When otherwise we cannot see him, we cannot feel him. This is how you experience the reality of him. For modern saints, I've come to think, especially for young people today, I've really come to think the way to connect experientially to the living water of God and Christ and the kingdom. You want to connect to all that in the realm of experience? Amid all these mirages of finding happiness in the modern desert, then throw yourself into blessing other people in God's name. The most vibrant Christians I know are those who are busy watering others, and so they are constantly driven to the water of life. Well, in coming weeks, I want to look at six more desert dwellers. We're going to look at a married couple, two women, another man, a king, and a queen. Because we really need these stories. I think we need these stories. We are in the desert, make no mistake. The only question is whether we will be able to live and flourish out of the living water, the presence and the purposes of the living God, who has told us he will never leave us or forsake us. That is what we must live. May the Lord help us. Father, bless these things to our beyond the parking lot today. In Jesus we pray.